So I want to give us an image to focus on today. This is very high technology stuff right here. Um, throughout the whole sermon, you have these pictures of one of the oldest existing trees in the world, right up there with like the redwoods and the Pacific Northwest. But this is the, and I, I stand to be corrected if you know French, you can come up and talk about my pronunciation after the service. But this is the Chenet Chapelle, the Chapel Oak, uh, located in Alluville, Bellefosse in France. Um, the tree goes all the way back to Charlemagne, more than a thousand years old, between maybe between 900 and 1200 years old. It survived Louis the Fourteenth and the French Revolution, Napoleon, and and even uh, Nikolai Sarkozy. <laughs> There's you know all these all these lore uh, around it that William the Conqueror knelt at its base in the in the 1600s. This big tree was struck by lightning and it, it I, I love I love kind of the image it, it burned down and hollowed out the whole trunk of the tree somehow the tree survived um, shortly after some of the um, Catholic monks in the surrounding village decided we're going to turn this really special tree we're going to consecrate it and turn it into a chapel devoted to, to Mary and as you as you see the tree has had some better days um, but it still stands. I'm sure it, at one time it didn't look so Keebler Elvy, you know? Uh, but it still stands. It's got wooden shingles covering the places that it's losing its bark. Stilts and poles, like 35-foot poles, brace it from tipping over or collapsing. It's, it's in pretty sad a state, and uh, maybe even is a good kind of visual 3D reminder of kind of struggling, declining European Christianity. But uh, I want us to, to kind of have this picture in our minds um, during the sermon. Uh, last week, and, and what I hope to continue, I, I hope to make it a regular thing so that you're, you're kind of expecting um, to tell your story uh, here at Oak Church. Uh, w we had a testimony from Stuart last week, and, and I want to invite Abby to come up and Abby's going to share her testimony. Um, again, a lot of these are coming from the core team, but um, during, the, during the summer we had a chance to each kind of tell our stories um, around a song, and you can use this mic, around a song or, or uh, something in your life. And uh, we're going to hear this morning from Abby. So uh, give, give Abby a round of applause. That helps. Well, that's more nerve-wracking. <laughs> Thanks. Um. So, uh, like Chris said, over the summer when we shared our stories, we had kind of a, a little keynote to help us um, start. And uh, so when he asked me to speak today, the first thing I thought of, which is very odd, was the Cowardly Lion. Um, well, and I don't like the Cowardly Lion, so that was a little um, disturbing initially. Um, as a child, I understood that a Tin Man would probably not have a heart and that a man made of straw would not have a brain, but that a lion should be in possession of courage just by the very nature of being a lion. Um, and so I started kind of thinking about that and the story that he walks through and the people he walks through that story with. And it took a, a moment and an opportunity to walk with people who, no matter what he said about himself, 
treated him as if his best self was there and possible. Um, and so as we think about these verses of how God restores cities and renews generations, um, that's a very personal thing because often it's only one person's actions that um, can, can move many people. Um, so in terms of being similar to the cowardly lion, because unfortunately, as my English professors like to tell me in school, the characters we dislike the most are probably the ones that are reflecting something that we dislike about ourselves, and they were very rarely wrong. Um, I think probably most of you know that I'm a single mom uh, to Eva, and um, I wish that I could tell you that that mistake was my dumbest mistake in life, to get knocked up at 22 by a stranger, uh, but it's not even in my top five, unfortunately. Um, I've struggled with suicidal thoughts since eighth grade. I have post-traumatic stress disorder from being sexually assaulted in college. I lost a fiance to identity fraud a week before we were supposed to get married. My grandfather died of brain cancer after living for a year without half of his skull because they thought he was only going to live for weeks. And there are so many things that have happened and that I have done that I have bravely and falsely tried to prevent anybody from knowing that I carry with me on a daily basis. And that's, that's bravado, that's, that's not bravery. What bravado is is based in fear and um, eventually it doesn't really fool anybody no matter what you try and do and what you try and convince other people of. Um, just like the cowardly lion had that first moment uh, presenting himself as aggressive and brave um, it was very easily found out to be a lie. So um, even, even though there have been so many things that have happened and that I have done wrong, um, God gave me an opportunity to start a wholehearted story when he gave me Eva, because that was the very first moment in my life where I saw that he was ready to give me a purpose instead of pain. And... That's, that's, not a, that's not something that just changes your life overnight. It does, but it also doesn't. Um, it's a moment-to-moment it's a -moment change, and it's not until I was able to even admit to the people around me that I was walking in that story that things began to change. So after I had Eva, a year later, I had a friend also find herself pregnant and single, and was able to just share my story with her. A year ago, uh, another friend had to call off an engagement and I was the first person she called and it's not anything big and I didn't do anything special except to acknowledge that the only way that I was ever gonna get through anything that had happened was to tell God that I couldn't do it by myself. And being very type A and controlling, that was very difficult to do, but part of the bravado and part of the lie is that I was in control and that I could make it better, and that I could heal on my own, and that's just a lie. It's not true. It's not true for any of us. Um, those, those things that God allows into our life, whether it's um, by design or just sheer stupidity, he's willing to see that in his forever vision for the whole world, and that no matter what 
awful things you struggle with or what awful things I still hear and tell myself about myself. His story and his beauty for the way things change and for the way people can interact with my story is priceless and it doesn't make it okay that bad things have happened, but it does make it worth it. And so just like the cowardly lion had to walk through some fire to find that moment where he could be the lion that God always intended to be, um, I'm really grateful for all the opportunities that God has allowed me to walk through the fire and often be burned, but to come out from it and be able to sit and heal with others and to eventually become the lion that he always intended me to be. Thanks, Evan. Stay up here, Evan. I'm going to pray for you. Um, pray with me. Uh, Father, we thank you uh, for your daughter, Abby, uh, for her ability to tell uh, this story, even, even just to be able to tell it. I'm sure that hasn't always been the case. Um, thank you for making sense of her story and, and our stories and um, events and, and things and feelings and um, places where we've uh, had our eyes um, closed and, and been running away from you and, and, and you, you make sense of it and, and you show us that in the midst of all that you, you were there, uh, you are here, you will be there for us um, and you're faithful. Uh, Father, we thank you for um, the ways that Abby can uh, proclaim your grace uh, by the ways that you've, you've turned um, suffering and bad situations into, into beauty, um, into uh, imperfect, but somehow um, in that beautiful, beautiful results. We thank you that this story's not over and, and uh, the ways that she'll serve you with it um, and the ways that we can all serve you with our, our histories, our um, things we've gone through and things that we've gone through with you uh, that we can share them with others. Yeah, we thank you so much. Uh, we thank you uh, for Jesus who's, who's with us, who, who suffered and, and knows um, our fears, our hurts, um, knows uh, everything uh, we could possibly go through. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Abby. So I invite Philip Henry to come up and read um, Isaiah 61. And this, we'll read the whole chapter, but we'll focus on some of the verses. And this is a, a very important couple of verses for Oak Church. Uh, you might recognize Oak Church in these verses, and, and Philip has promised to lower his voice about an octave or two to really get the gravity of that. So. This is Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all those who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a faint spirit. They will be called oaks of righteousness, 
the planting of the Lord, to display his glory. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and feed your flocks. Foreigners shall, shall till your land and dress your vines, and you shall be called priests of the Lord. You shall be named ministers of our God, and you shall enjoy the wealth of the nations, and in their riches you shall glory, because their shame was double, and dishonor was proclaimed as their lot. Therefore, they shall possess a double portion. Everlasting joy shall be theirs. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants shall be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge that they are a people whom the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My whole being shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the earth brings forth its shoots, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. Thanks, Phil. They will be called oaks of righteousness. The other day I had a, a brief conversation with Pastor Ricardo, who a lot of you have met, of Canoe, uh, who meets here uh, Sunday afternoons. I was telling him what our passage was today, and we started talking about all of the things God calls his people, ways he reveals himself to us and gives us an idea of the identity that he's graciously giving us. In Scripture, we, we start as children and, and we wind up as God's spouse. There are metaphors of sheep under a shepherd, and um, that shepherd also winds up being the lamb who is slain. And of course, there's agricultural images that abound. You know, um, Agrarian writer Wendell Berry uh, notes, I don't think it's enough appreciated how much of an outdoor book the Bible is, and, and this time of year it's, it's good to know that. It says it's a book open to the sky, and it's best read and understood outdoors. And the further outdoors, the better. So oaks of righteousness is the image we're given. And I love it. It, 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 it kind of combines tangible and intangible, right? We know what an oak tree is, what it feels like, what its bark feels like. We can hold its acorns and rake its leaves and even make furniture out of it for our use. A coat of stain brings out the rich grain that helps us remember seasons, years of growth. Oaks are surely something we can identify with. It's, it's, a, it's a moniker that we're pretty happy to receive. Isaiah speaks of solid, majestic oaks as the surprising growth God made happen when Israel's future was desperate and uncertain. Jesse's tree had been laid low, down to the stump. The Messiah would be the shoot that would spring up surprisingly, almost inexplicably, and grow into a mighty 
heritage that we're part of. But righteousness? <laughs> righteousness we're a little less sure of. Everyone thinks they're being righteous, right? But most of the, often we're just acting like jerks when we're righteous. Is that, is that true? Being self-righteous means we judge, we're defensive, we're tribalistic. We justify some pretty unrighteous things when we think that we're being righteous. A friend of mine um, has a saying, he says, I only have two emotions, anger and righteousness. And oftentimes our righteousness starts and ends with us. <coughs> but when the Bible talks of righteousness, when we read righteousness in Isaiah, especially um, Isaiah and the other prophets, they use a word, and, and this is uh, really short Hebrew school, and I, I, we have people in, the, in this audience that could probably do this better than me right now. They use this word, uh, zedekah, zedekah, which peeks through in names like Zedekiah or Melchizedek. They're, they're kind of in those names. And sometimes it's helpful to use original words, not just to be fancy, but to try to figure out what the writers mean, uh, not what we just think of or what we think we know. So when the, the writers say Zedekiah, it's not some sort of law court, not a gavel ready to be pounded, but many commentators talk about this kind of righteousness more covenantally, the relationship between God and his people. Zedekah denotes not so much some sort of abstract idea of justice or virtue, but right standing and consequent right behavior within a community. My Old Testament professor, Dr. Davis, renders it right order. He talks about it, it, it's a healthy relationality amongst creatures, between the creator and, and the creature. Righteousness puts things to right. Think of it this way. The power of God to make something or someone righteous is, is it's like the power to turn a chair that's turned over and set it upright. To make righteous means to set something right, to call something right. And then Isaiah sees the new creation coming through the Messiah, the anointed one at the time when God's people would be set right. They'd be made whole, repentant, in step with the creator and creation, free from the bondage of, of sin, of our own sin, of fear of death. And the church is the place where all this works itself out. We live united to Christ, the Messiah, the righteous one. This means our broken lives are made whole, or can be. That all the ways we come up short of God's glory have been overcome by the cross, that we've been forgiven and can offer forgiveness. It's, it's interactive. Like the younger son in the prodigal story, we're welcomed back into the father's embrace. We're given a new inheritance. We're fed and clothed. We're made right with a party thrown in our honor. Our shame is restored. Our tears are wiped away. Our loneliness and isolation are gone. We're made sons and daughters in God's family. This is righteousness. It's dynamic. It's active righteousness. It's not static. It's not something we sit back and enjoy for ourselves. 
To be righteous is to spread righteousness. To be righteous is to spread righteousness. And I don't think that's all that different than the picture we've been getting of God. That he blesses a people to be a blessing. Or there's verses like, freely you've given, you've been given, so freely give. Or that you're free for the sake of freedom. God's holiness is always a set-apartness for the sake of his purpose. He sets people right in order for them to be his setting-right people. So this tzedakah, our righteousness from God, lets him put things in our lives right and then calls us to be part of that work in others. That's a big privilege for us, right? So I want to talk about a few things related to tzedakah. And my wife loves list. So this might be an opportunity to write list. There's going to be kind of three and a half things about that. Uh, That righteousness, our being oaks of righteousness are connected to place and time. That's one thing. Place and time. Beauty and fruit. Place and time, beauty and fruit. Place and time. I love the image of the oak because it implies that righteousness happens in a place. Rather than floating above the earth, righteousness is rooted. It gets down and dirty. So many of our problems and our friendships and our relationships, our marriages happen because we live so hypothetically. We're waiting for ideal conditions for God to work. But God calls us to to, to work, to be righteous, to experience his righteousness in uncertain and imperfect conditions. Sure, oak trees can be transplanted. It happens. We did it here. You can pull it up and you can move an oak tree all the way across the world and replant it and it'll live and grow and drop acorns and be an oak tree. But a tree matures. A tree thrives when it takes root when it becomes a stable part of the environment and place where it is. A tree thrives when it's nurtured and receives nutrients and adapts to its surroundings when it provides shade and and shelter, food and foliage, and uh, does this for other creatures. In short, a tree thrives when it becomes part of the landscape of a place, part of a community. I think this is true for us. This, and, and this is a, a level of stability and patience and interdependence that kind of cuts away, cuts against the ways that we're tempted to try to live. You know, we're, we're hyper-connected, but a lot of times we're completely disconnected or adrift. You know, we're oftentimes we're aware of what someone we kind of know, but we don't really know. We know what they had for breakfast this morning. But we're not even tuned in to the fact that like, it was really hard for our spouse or our best friend to, to go to work for the last two weeks or to even wake up. We're bombarded with news and facts and opinions, but we're ignorant and inattentive oftentimes to even our own spiritual needs or the emotional needs or physical needs of our neighbor. We're, we we kind of have this fear of missing out on the next big thing, and sometimes we miss the the slew of very small things that God's calling us to be faithful for that are right on our lap. 
So this sort of living, it, it kind of has a small slowness to it. And it kinda, that kind of small, slow living takes a lot of trust. It takes faith in God. Because it's easier to plan on when we'll encounter Christ or people who need Christ's love. It's a lot harder to have open eyes and ears to sense that when it's happening, when it surprises us. There's a guy down the road uh, in Durham in Walltown, and Nate knows, knows this guy really well. Um, he, he writes about this kind of stability. His name's Jonathan uh, Wilson Hartgrove, and he says that this kind of stability is a commitment to trust God, not in an ideal world, but in the battered and bruised world we know. If real life with God can happen anywhere at all, it can happen here among the people whose troubles are already evident to us. Zedekiah has a place. Righteousness has a place. Righteousness also has a time. Or maybe more accurately, righteousness always has plenty of time. Righteousness always has plenty of time. Sure, we're to hunger and thirst for righteousness, and there's a lot of urgency in being hungry. Just ask a toddler or a, your partner. <laughs> um, but an oak of righteousness is planted for the long haul and experiences all sorts of seasonal changes, climate shifts. An oak withstands. Oaks are strong enough to bend in harsh winds. If, if you look at this oak, it was even able to stand as it had its guts burnt out. Oaks of righteousness thrive off the slow and imperceptible little deaths and resurrections of every day that the dying to self and that uh, sells out to gain eternal life, the dead leaves that feed new life. And to quote Barry again, uh, to paraphrase Wendell Berry again, faith is in that two inches of humus that will build under the trees every thousand years. That's a long time. If God calls us oaks of righteousness, we're to cultivate a, an attentiveness, uh, a patience, an attention to detail that comes from a history. Because we have all the time in the world. Like Ephesians 3 puts it, we're being rooted and established in, in love having power together with the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, being filled to the measure of the fullness of God. This fullness extends in four dimensions, maybe even five with time, height and depth and width and length, yesterday, today, and tomorrow, filled to the fullness of God in Christ. Zedekiah has all the time in the world. In beauty, and I probably should have just had Abby write about this uh, with her testimony. A planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor, his glory, his beauty. That last word is a, it's kind of a showing off word for God. One that Isaiah really likes. Again, a Hebrew word, pa'ar, it appears 14 times in the Bible. Nine of them are in Isaiah. In the prophet's mind, righteousness has a look and a feel to it, an aesthetic, a, a, and it should be on display for all to see. 
But we always got to remember when we think about beauty to let God tell us what beauty is. To get our cues about what is true and good and beautiful from God. Because if we're not careful, we, we want beauty to be perfection, but we forget that a few chapters back in Isaiah, he talks about God's splendor through this Christ, through this Christ that would grow up us as oaks. In Isaiah 53, he says, that Christ grew up before them like a tender shoot, like a root out of the dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. When we look at Christ, we see an image of the invisible God, who and how God is. When we look at Christ, surprisingly, we see God's beauty, too. His victory, his very self, that comes to us in the form of a servant, suffering, despised, and rejected. I, I think of um, artist uh, Mako Fujimura, and he came uh, through town. He's come through a couple times, and he came to the Gathering Church. And he's a, a Christian artist, and, and kind of draws his vocation to, to paint out of this idea of beauty. He he paints in the style called Nihonga, and it's, it's a traditional Japanese style, and he uses crushed metals and pulverized pigments, and he, and he puts them out and, and kind of um, with water kind of spreads them out, and there's a, an unpredictability and an imperfection about it. He says that every beauty also suffers. Beauty is in the brokenness, not in what we can conceive as perfections. Not in finished images, but incomplete gestures. Through the beauty of broken limitations. I think this really frees us, right? This idea that um, we're not slaves to some sort of beauty that's dependent on our perfection. How hard we work, how good we are. Um, that, that we're not disqualified uh, for our scars. Instead, we... Um, grow to resemble what we love and, and, and if that's Christ it's, it's beautiful but it's a certain type of beauty that's suffered and that kind of spins that suffering for the sake of others it's a beauty based on sacrifice it's a beauty not based on despair but on hope so what if we best displayed God's splendor, his beauty by putting on display our own brokenness our own ways that we're vulnerable, the ways that we have been healed or the ways we need to be healed. That's what I love about these times of testimony. They're, they're times to talk about God being faithful, but they're also times to, to, to bear yourself in front of people, some of whom are strangers, some of whom love you anyway, some of whom love you because of that. What if... What, what if this kind of bearing, we, we start to see these, skins, these sin scars as small testimonies of God's righteousness. Cracks that let God's light shine through. What if an 
a righteous oak's main job is to manifest God's healing in a hurting world. But if we can show off God's strength and weakness, His beauty and in brokenness, His love in the midst of suffering, His light that breaks in on darkness, what if that's our job? And last, fruit. So we've had place and time, had beauty, and now fruit. And interestingly, interestingly enough, Isaiah's vision of wholeness and righteousness starts with that tree, that oak of righteousness, and it moves to a city. Just in these two verses, we start with agriculture and we move to culture. And a poet once wrote that only God can make a tree. I think that's true. I think that's true agriculture. Think about that. You can plant a tree, but you cannot make a tree. We can plant it, we can water it, we can nurture it, we can even enjoy it, but only God can make a tree. That's also true spiritually. Only God can make us oaks of righteousness. We're only brought into God's life by His grace. We're redeemed. We're remade as we return to Him for our healing. As we die to ourselves and our sin and we're raised with Christ. This is resurrection. This is hope. We leave behind the lives that we know and we live in Christ. That agriculture, that work of God gives way to our work though. The fruit of our righteousness. Verse 4 says, of, of these oaks, they will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Rebuild, restore, and renew. We may not be able to make trees, but human beings can make cities. Scripture gives us the story of the, the holy city of Jerusalem, David's city, also the, the unfaithful city, Babylon, that's called a, a whore for her unfaithfulness. Cities represent the height and I guess the depth of what humans are capable of, good and bad. They're the fruit of our labor. So I don't think it's insignificant that the fruit of God's labor, which is making us righteous oaks, is rebuilding, restoration and renewal of cities that, you know, the verse says, have been long gone, far gone, devastated for generations. That's our story. That's how we have been made oaks of righteousness. We've been rebuilt, restored, renewed. And then we do that. We do that on a, on a broader scale, on a much more dense scale. That's the thing about cities is that they're, they have a density about them. People. Righteousness bears fruit, and that fruit is the same fruit that Christ has bore for each of us through our brokenness, through our beautiful brokenness. So we return to the image of that chapel oak that I'm not going to try to say in French again. It's hardly the oak of righteousness that we aspire to look like, right? It's probably closer to the oak of righteousness that we actually do look like to people that actually know us or even strangers. We limp or peel, we're falling apart. It's a, 
It's ironic, and I think it's God's type of irony that this chapel oak got turned into a chapel oak, the very birth of its place, of it as a place of worship, its new identity, its beauty comes from its scars. It came from a tragic event that kills most trees, a lightning strike, a fire, trauma, and tragedy, looming death and destruction. But instead, and this is God's type of irony, it, it was transfigured, it was changed, it was transformed into a place of worship, a place of praise, a place of communion with God and others, right standing with creation. If trees can sacrifice, and I, I, I don't know, I think this chapel oak did and does. Somehow there's beauty in that brokenness, that frailty, that vulnerability. Not in spite of it, but through it. And so in some way I think we're all this chapel oak. And so uh, in doing a little research, the, the small congregation of the Chenet Chapelle uh, still gathers twice a year, still, even, cause it, even though it looks like that, and they, they celebrate Mass. Even though it's not even safe to, to inhabit the tree in the way that that monk had hoped for, they, they don't go inside. Yeah. The tree never stands more beautiful. It's never more full of the display of the Lord's splendor than when they're sharing communion, as we're going to share communion broken body and poured out blood of the suffering servant offered in this chapel. And I, I think that's the case. Again, we're oaks. We're, we're, we are the chapel oak. We're never more beautiful. We're never more righteous. We're never more fully ourselves than when we're receiving and offering this Christ who, who rebuilds, who restores, who renews us for his kingdom and for his kingdom work.